Back makes it easy to spend, send, and earn crypto. With Back, you can earn $1 in Bitcoin per day when you pay using your Back card with Apple Pay. Tap into crypto from December 15th through the 24th and score up to $10 in Bitcoin. Terms and conditions apply. Learn more at back.com slash Apple Pay. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Earn more with your crypto on Kava. Kava is a fully integrated decentralized finance platform that puts the power of lending, borrowing, and trading in the hands of users. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry-leading yields at kava.io today. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to part two of our two-part season finale episode featuring FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried. We hope you enjoy part two of this podcast. Thank you for listening. I want to transition now from policy. Well, this kind of ties into markets, so we'll go there, you know, with, with the anticipation that the Fed's going to accelerate the pace of tapering. And, you know, inflation's rising. You know, the Biden administration is very concerned about inflation. It could be a huge concern for the Democrats in the midterms. What do you think just broadly about, like, the state of the country and the economy? So I think it's hard to not do this through the lens of COVID. Mm -hmm. Like, I think a really key piece of the backdrop here is, you know, you think about, like, what damage did COVID do to the economy? And let's sort of ignore monetary policy for a second and just think about like the number of bananas that we grew or like, you know, the actual productivity. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's probably like a 10 or 20 percent hit for the last couple of years. Like it's just absolutely massive, right? Like declines in, in active participation from the labor force, declines in efficiency, supply chain issues. There's a huge deal. And so, OK, so so I think like that sort of is is the backdrop is like we had a recession because some like investment banks levered up too much mm-hmm. on subprime real estate. Mm-hmm. Nothing real even happened. It's not like a meteor hit houses, you know, it was just like, I don't know, some weird derivatives. Like why didn't we have a recession over the last few years? Right. When literally there was a global pandemic and a lot of people stopped working or working effectively and, the global supply chains broke down, right? Like that's that's sort of not a good economic backdrop to be doing things in. But I think despite that, that like we're kind of in a shockingly not terrible situation or something economically by some metrics. By some metrics, maybe people are super worried, but by some, I think you could say like, well, I don't know, you know, the economy is okay. I don't know, weird. Weird is maybe the word I would use to describe Cash it. Cash balances for a lot of, you know, more high income earners have never been higher. Um, yeah. You know, businesses have kind of, you had that drop, but they came back relatively unscathed compared to some of the more, some of the less rosy 
economic data, I mean, you know, Goldman Sachs and the depths of the pandemic expected unemployment to go to like 30%. That didn't pan out. That's sort of worst case scenario. But there are still these issues. Right? There's still worries. And, and there's inflation. And I think rather than saying, oh, that's interesting, like, you know, it turned out we were wrong. And like, the problem with the pandemic is inflation, not economic productivity loss. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think that these are, it is a trade-off, right? I think it's like not unrelated that like one of those ended up worse than expected and the other ended up better. Because I think fundamentally what happened was we made a choice, a monetary choice. And I, I frankly think, I mean, I don't know whether it was the right choice, but mm-hmm. I don't think it was a crazy choice. I mean, I think one could defend that choice pretty reasonably. But for better or for worse, the choice that we made as a society was that we were going to bail everything out preemptively with such massive size that it couldn't, that the the notion of it crashing would be hilarious, Mm -hmm. right? Like the government was just like, you have a bond, we will buy it. Mm -hmm. Like we will buy it as much as one could buy a bond. Like, can we buy more please? Yeah. You know? And, And so from that perspective, like it was a really extreme fiscal response that we had, maybe a correct one, but, but certainly extreme. And what that meant was that on the one hand, you know, the government backstopped a lot of areas of our global financial system really strongly in a moment of crisis. And, and somehow we avoided, in some ways, the recession people worried about. But, but the flip side of this is that we did so by inflating the monetary supply by, frankly, an impressive amount. I mean, you look at like a graph, right, of like monetary supply over time. It's not like, like you can't miss the pandemic in that graph. It's just like, it looks like a graph of the pandemic, you know, sort of like, like, and, and, and I think that that, that is a trade-off and, and, and aligning for a second, what the correct monetary policy is that, that, that is what we, we empirically did. And that's why we are where we are today. And, and I think that now you look at, I think one framing of this is, yeah, we have caused massive inflation. Well, we've caused moderate inflation so far, but we've caused really substantial projections of future inflation, right? As people look to, among other things, like continuations of the policies that we've seen. And I think when you when you see people talking about tapering, I think a lot of what's going through people's minds is like, you know, the core sin here hasn't necessarily been just inflation so far. Like a lot of this is, you know, people's expectations of what will happen in the future. So maybe let's try and kind of stamp down on that. Give to the market some sort of sense that there will be a return to normalcy. And, you know, I think that the markets reacted strongly to that. And I think that when, you know, we've seen markets go up and down in this market environment, that's not even always, I think, the right way to think about it, right? Like, sometimes I think this is fiat moving, not markets moving, right? And like, what happened over the last week? Did markets go down or did fiat go up because of expectations of tapering, right? Like, I think that's probably a decent part of what happened. These are two sides of the same coin. Do you think that the Fed should have seen this coming, though? I mean, we had Mohammed El Harin say that this was probably the worst call in the history of the Fed. Do oh, you think I, that when you think about this backdrop that you just laid out for us, that you know, you think about the chart, right? That we should have known that the CPI data was ultimately going to be hot at some point, and that maybe the Fed was was complacent. So on the one hand, yeah, they absolutely should have seen this coming. Like, no, I think no question about that. Now, 
I kind of feel like I should have seen this coming. And I, I, <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I don't know what to say. I just didn't. Like, it wasn't until it had came. I was like, what the fuck is happening? And, like, sat down and read a lot. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what's happening. I guess it would have been weird if that didn't happen. Yes, I shouldn't be surprised by any of this, you know? But I, I, I didn't really predict any of this, which is not a great sign for me or something. But, but you know, I, I think that, like, I don't think these are super easy things to predict. I think they're especially harder than you would think they are to predict. Like, I think it's just, like, a thing people underperform at pretty consistently. But, but I also think that, like, maybe some of the Fed did predict this. Mm-hmm. I kind of would hope they did, although I don't, I don't feel confident that they did. I kind of do want to ask one more um, policy-related yeah. question, just because you kind of got the you got the thought in my head, which is this idea of systemic risk to the system, and this is something I think a lot of policymakers are concerned about with crypto. They don't want to miss the next mortgage crisis or the next CDO, right? They want to yep. stay ahead of it, and they see something complicated like. Even though, you know, for folks like us, and I say this with some humility, but not a lot, stable coins are fairly straightforward compared to sort of like literally you have decentralized CDOs and you have all sorts of very wonky, yep. pedantic type of lending algorithmic stable coins. I mean, it gets way more complicated than even a mortgage backed security or a bundled up mortgage security. So they're looking for that. They see complexity and maybe their, their mind goes right back to that crisis. When you think of something like stable coins, and whether or not there will be a heightened scrutiny over it because of this fear, do you think there might be some sort of intense crackdown? And is Tether, is, is are the sites going to be set on Tether? Will that impact your business? Would you maybe have to delist Tether or rethink certain listings? What could be the impact of, of a crackdown on stablecoin? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start by answering the question I feel most confident about there, which is will the sites be set on Tether? Yes, they will. I mean, that, I think if there's anything the crypto ecosystem has taught us, it's that like, if McDonald's introduces the McRib again, the sites are going to be set on Tether. But, you know, we're sort of putting that, that aside for a second. You know, I think that, I think there are a few ways this can go. I'm optimistic that it's going to go in a healthier direction, but I'm not confident, certainly. And I think that this really is like, look, concerns that people have around stable coins are completely legitimate. And I don't blame people at all for them. I also think that these are just not that hard to address. That like, what should we be doing, right? We should just be saying, all right, you know, you're concerned about stablecoin risk. That That's a reasonable concern. I empathize with that. Let's address that by having oversight to confirm that stablecoins are backed as they say they are, right? That is the core thing that stablecoins should have and don't. And I think that sort of instead, instead of that, you know, the, the worry is that we just get a ton of hang, hand wringing here, right? You know, like we get a ton of people being like, like, oh boy, I'm, I'm just kind of concerned. Like, like you hear about concern, I think often. It's sort of like this abstract notion, you know? And, and I, think, I think, you know, this is frankly something that we see in our business a lot, where, you know, someone will, will come to me and say, hey, Sam, you know, I'm, I'm sort of worried about this thing. What if this bad thing happened? And I think often my response is like, I hear you. That's a reasonable worry. I'm, I'm kind of glad that you brought that up, actually. You know, it's, it's, it's useful for us to be thinking about that. I'm like, but Sam, I'm just really worried about it. I'd be like, I, I hear you. They're like, Sam, I, I want to hear, like, I'm worried. Are you worried? And I think my response is like, look, there are a ton of things to worry about. This is one of them. I'm glad that you brought this up. But again, you know, it, it's sort of, 
was already a little bit on our radar, but but still glad you brought it up. But like, let's refocus this conversation here. Like, if you're worried about this, what could you do? What could you do to address that worry? Like, let's talk about solutions here. Let's talk about practical steps forward. And I think often when you reframe it that way, it's just like all of the sort of drama falls away. And it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess we could work on that. I don't know, is that the top priority? Maybe, maybe not. But like all of a sudden, just everyone's like, yeah, I don't know, here's the thing we do, here's another thing we do. Yeah, this thing seems a little more important. Let's do that thing. And so again, I think that like, I'm optimistic, but not confident about is that we'll be able to refocus a lot of this like concern, which I do think is important towards like, all right, practically speaking, what should we do? What are the policies that we should enact to address the specific concerns that are had to prevent systemic risk. And I really do think we could just address basically all of that with this like auditing regime. I think the worry is that you go straight from sort of consternation to enacted regulation without like chatting about it first. And you accidentally end up saying like only four financial institutions in the world are legally allowed to issue a stable coin. And you narrow it down to four financial institutions that definitely are not going to ever issue a stable coin. Like, I think that's sort of fundamentally the worry that you're trying to, to fend off here. Yeah, and you completely just suffocate that innovation from ever seeing the, the light of day ever again. One other thing that I wonder wonder if regulators are concerned about are the offshore liquidations. We've seen this cycle play out fairly frequently over the course of 2021, 20, right? You know, even with announcements from firms like you and Binance to bring down retail leverage from 100x to 20x, there's still these cycles that play out. I wonder what you think about them and whether they'll continue to be something that investors need to be mindful of and think about. And if there's any way to sort of limit those cascading liquidations from taking hold, I've spoke with some folks who say they should be done off the main order book. Obviously, an easy solution would just be limit leverage. But even further, but obviously traders love leverage in this market. So what can be done? So, well, on one of those, we already have a, a program in place where by default, we try and liquidate on order books. But if that's not working, if that's not getting done in time, we do have a stable backstop liquidity providers ready to take over liquidating accounts for sort of exactly that reason sometimes. And, you know, you try to avoid this, but, but the worry, right, is, is that, you could end up in a position where where there's just like more demand for liquidity from liquidations than there is actual liquidity supplied. And I think that that the way to to fight against that is well, there are a lot of things, but you know, at the last moment, if nothing else, you know, you can uh you, you can do what we do, have have something like the backstop liquidity provider program. But you know, I think outside of that, limiting leverage, I think I think people often don't quite think through what the implications of various things you can do here are. And what I mean by that is what we already do, and I think other exchanges sometimes do, some exchanges do this better than others, is have like, you know, collateral requirements that depend on position size. So the bigger your position is, the more, you know, the higher fraction level you have to have. And so on, on FTX, if you want to have a $500 million position, you're not posting 5% collateral on that. You're posting like, you know, 40% collateral or something. I say, you know, it depends on the, the token. Some are more liquid than others. Um, but, you know, we have this thing called the IMF factor, initial margin fraction factor, which which controls that growth 
And so I think that that's, you know, something that, that we have. And, and what does that mean? The fact that we have that means that, that already, if you have a very big position, right, you're going to be posting substantial amounts of collateral on mm-hmm. that. You're not going to have very high leverage on a very high position. And what that means is that even the positions that have like moderately high leverage today on FTX, they're small positions. They are not things that are going to cause a global financial collapse. And, and I think that that sort of is a really relevant part of this and something that, that frequently gets missed. And, and what that means is that, yeah, we could take down max leverage. It's not going to, it's not really going to do much in terms of like reducing sort of the size of like the larger liquidations, right? It's, it's, it's not going to have a material impact. In fact, like high leverage has never been a material part of that, right? The risk here is always in, in, in very large market moves, mm-hmm. right? Mark moves that are so big that even having moderate leverage is super scary. It's more of the volatility of the underlying assets than the sort of mechanisms around it from a leverage perspective. Yeah, I think that's basically right. And so, you know, where does that leave you? I think where it leaves you is like, yeah, you need to have substantial collateral backing large positions. You need to understand the volatility of the assets. You need to understand that 50% moves have happened before. And then the last thing is I I legitimately think that with FTX and and I think some other crypto platforms have have built things which have some prop parts of this. We've built something which is which is in a lot of ways safer than traditional risk waterfalls, right? If you think about like with a traditional exchange, features exchange, what's the risk waterfall there? First of all, often there's basically no money. Like FTX's insurance fund is bigger than the exchange contribution of any exchange in the world, I think maybe, on their like risk waterfall by like an order of magnitude, right? So it's not like, like, uh, like on that side, I think already we have more and I think that's going to keep growing over time. So we're doing that. What else can you do? Well, we have a few properties that I think really do help to address a lot of this. And the biggest is 24 seven risk engines, right? Like if you look at what's the single biggest risk that CME or ICE or SIBO face today, that, you know, positions on those face today. I kind of think the single biggest thing is like, what happens if someone puts a big position on Friday, mm-hmm. right? Like Friday at 3 p.m. And then the weekend starts. And now all of a sudden, it's, you know, how long is it going to be until you could execute a merging call on that? Like three days? But is that a risk or is that almost like a benefit? It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? When you have markets that have a start and finish it gives time for exchanges to not have to rebuild or fix the plane while it's flying, but also allows the market to digest certain information. There is that factor, but, and you know, you could maybe worry about like a giant move all of a sudden that was going to revert, but I don't think there's an obvious reason to think that it reverts, right? Like I think inherent in that is a sense that like, if there's a big move, you expect that move to undo itself over the next couple of days. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think in a lot of cases, I don't know, you could also imagine that just things move more and more, right? And that that's possible. And in a lot of cases, that's what would happen. And, and then by the time you start liquidating, it's it's way too late. If you want to protect things like the, the default waterfall, the, the biggest thing you're worried about is gap risk, right? The biggest thing that you're worried about is moves that are so, that are big and, and, and abrupt enough 
that before you can even ask people for more collateral, it's too late. You might be in the middle of a shopping scramble for last minute gifts and thinking, wouldn't it be nice to buy some of them with crypto? Well, your time has come. Before you make your next purchase, consider Backed. Backed makes it easy to spend crypto and today through December 24th, you can earn $1 in Bitcoin each day you pay using the back card with Apple Pay. Not to mention you can load your back card with crypto and use some of that virtual value for holiday gifting. Earn crypto when you pay using the back card with Apple Pay from December 15th through the 24th and score up to $10 in Bitcoin rewards for twice the nice. Terms and conditions apply. Learn more at back.com slash Apple Pay. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Are you ready to take your crypto earnings to the next level? Kava is a fully integrated decentralized finance platform that combines institutional grade security and user driven design. Lend, borrow and trade your crypto all in one seamless experience. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry leading reward APYs at KAVA.io today. How's the institutional side of the business doing? I know that was kind of part of the push with some of the more recent fundraises to get more intertwined with Wall Street. What's the status on that? I would say optimistic. It is a slow process. Uh, this is not something which is going to happen overnight. This is something which happens, you know, at the speed that large institutions move. And, you know, I would always love that that speed be faster than it is, but it is what it is. And as you know, I think basically cautiously optimistic that we're going to see a ton of progress on that. But but this is all contingent on what happens there. And, and you know, this isn't something where I can I can say confidently, you know, that we are going to get huge numbers of institutions onboarding, or I can say confidently we will get a lot onboarding. I can't say confidently that they will end up trading, but we are onboarding a ton of them. And you know, I think that the what I strongly expect the seminal moment here to be is LedgerX going live is you know or really ftx us derivatives going live with the products that i think we're all really excited about on it like right now what's it have has fully collateralized physically settled futures which basically is like spot markets without delivery mm -hmm. it, it's not the most exciting product ever um and that's not that's not a knock on it like this is a very you know it's a step-by-step -step process but we're super optimistic that over the next year we're going to be able to have much more powerful products on it. And in fact, have a set of products that basically no one else in the country has, or even is, is all that close to having. And so that I think is what we are really excited for there. And, and hopefully, you know, we will get that going over the next three to 18 months, something like that. So that's, that, that serves the big thing that, that we're, that we're sort of like sitting on there. And, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of other things in the background to kind of prepare for that. Yes, in as strong a position as we can be going into that. But, you know, fundamentally, I'm, I'm super excited about it. And I think that there's just an enormous underserved 
area here in the U.S. crypto futures space. And I think, frankly, more generally, that there are a lot of parts of U.S. financial infrastructure that I think don't make a ton of sense. I think it's just not really how you would design this if you're designing it from scratch. I think it sort of ended up the way it did for like kind of accidental reasons. I think the non-24-7 nature is one piece of, but I think how intermediate it is for a lot of players makes no sense as well. Yeah. And and it speaks to sort of this mission of having everything under the same roof, different types of product spot, derivatives all within one place. You mentioned something interesting, which was as long as things continue to sort of along that path of adoption, you expect the institutional side of the business to grow. It's obviously a slow moving process, but it's also kind of seemingly more contingent on the broader macro backdrop. This whole idea of inflation hedge, we see it sometimes with Bitcoin, but crypto more than ever seems linked to the broader financial markets than ever before. Meme stocks were down yesterday. Meme coins were down yesterday. Yep. So if sort of there's something that happens in broader macro that scares off investors from risk assets, do they get scared away from crypto or is there enough capital sitting on the sidelines to maybe keep this market propped up, right? We think about $2 billion, $2.2 billion from A16Z, $2.5 from Paradigm. So maybe there is enough sitting on the sidelines to keep it from completely falling off a cliff. This is why people I talk to a lot say we're not going to have probably a bear market like the one from which we grew up in. But, and I'm sort of losing track of the question here, but it's clearly these two markets are more aligned than before. And the second one is, do you think this this sort of capital sitting on the sidelines can help uh, fend off a, a more cataclysmic sort of outcome if things go sour and broader macro? I mean, directionally, I think the answer is absolutely. And I think that, you know, similar, I think, to what you've been hearing, the amount of, of capital that is sitting here is just absolutely massive compared to what we saw in 2018. Mm-hmm. And or even 2020. And I think that like one interesting thing is you look at like, you know, the big crash in March of 2020 at the nadir there, like what was sort of a big worry people had? Well, I can tell you a big worry I had. It kind of looked like crypto ran out of dollars, like at the bottom there. It kind of looked like there's no bid. There's none. Right. And why is there no bid? I don't I don't know if there are any bidders. Like, it, I kind of, it, it really did just sort of feel like, oh boy, like we're out of bids as an industry. Um, we're out of dollars to bid with. That's not great. And it really doesn't feel like that today. Like, it really feels very different. And it, it feels just like so much more robust. And so I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think you can look at the crashes that, that we have gone through as an ecosystem, you know, more recently. And I think that they've been, you know, I don't want to say they've been like, They've been excited for them or anything like that. Like, I don't want to sort of overstate this, but they, they've been a lot less catastrophic than I think people were worried they might be. And I think that there's been, you know, the bids have been there and in, in much bigger size than, than used to be the case. And I think, you know, some of the races that you're talking about, I think that's a piece of it. I think it's not all of it. I think that there's just, you know, from every direction, there's capital coming into the space. So what other factors do you see playing out there outside of some of these major raises? So I think that like, just some large financial institutions, in fact, a fair number of them, have started to get involved in the ecosystem. And that's a pretty big change. 
And, you know, not all of them are super public about what they do, but it doesn't mean they're not there. And, and I think they are there. And I think that, that that they're actually having like already pretty large impact, you know, even if people don't always see it. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about, I think, a lot of that that we've seen going on. And, and I do think that that has just like really substantial potential to make things less catastrophic. So when we think about going into 2022, are we having catastrophic thoughts? What are we most excited about? And maybe if you could get your crystal ball in front of you, what, what are you anticipating and, and gearing up for in the new year? Yeah. So I think that like, you know, biggest things that I'm looking at over the next year, I think, first of all, like the bulk of the attention, as has been the case for a while, is going to be on regulation. And your shoes. And my shoes. And and really, what is the difference between those when you really drill into it? <laughs> um, no, but 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 seriously, like, you know, I do think that like, a lot of this is like, you know, is, is I think looking at where, where do we expect regulation to be going? Again, I think I'm sort of like, getting cautiously optimistic that it's going to be healthy and that it's going to, you know, that regulation is going to be driving the ecosystem forward rather than holding it back. I think there's sort of lots of reasons to think that that may be true. That doesn't necessarily mean it will be, but but I am optimistic about that. And so I think that that's one big piece of this, you know, and, and, and basically just hoping that it's going to be moving in a direction of, um, you know, giving oversight and clarity and consumer protection to the space while understanding what's really important for the space to be able to keep, um, you know, to, 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 to grow and to grow in a healthy way. And so I think that, um, you know, again, I don't want to say anything too confident here, but, but, but I, I, I am cautiously optimistic about that. So I think that's the single biggest thing that I'm looking, hopefully looking forward to, but certainly looking, looking forward at if nothing else, over the, the next year. And then I think, you know, institutional adoption of the space is probably the second biggest thing. Although I also think that that's not a completely independent thing from the first. Um, I think that, you know, what the regulatory landscape looks like in crypto, frankly, is going to have pretty large impact on how comfortable institutions do or don't feel getting involved in it. And, you know, this is not, this isn't just sort of like, yeah, I don't know, I guess people are going to kind of think about that as a factor. Like this is this is the single biggest thing on the minds of every big bank that's looking at the ecosystem right now is what is the regulatory status? What's regulatory yeah. clarity? How do regulators feel about all this? Yeah, I mean, big banks, large um, investment banks cannot touch physical Bitcoin itself, which right. in 2021 just seems like pretty insane given the amount of capital that's being deployed and the fact that other firms are able to operate and eat their lunch. Um, it's pretty shocking. I think that's definitely going to play out the sort of precarious waiting in of, of larger financial institutions. This might be trite, but obviously with just the, the insane amount of interest, and I see this on a day-to-day -day basis from my inbox, and I'm sure you see it from folks trying to pitch you, within the Web3 categories, the NFT categories and the metaverse categories, there is an insane amount of founders that are entering this market in the same way that you did in 2018 who are trying to enter crypto within or as a part of this Web3 wave. So I think yep. you're going to have like a whole class of new crypto entrepreneurs. The class that you came in with 
or the financial services class, the exchange class. Now you're going to have this new Web3 class. What do you think would be, we could have a whole separate podcast on that. I didn't want to get so much into Web3 because I think that's what everybody's talking about and, and folks have smart opinions on that. But what would be your advice very simply for folks who are building in this new category to see success? Yeah, I think that like, ah, geez. So sorry, the the thing going through my mind right now is basically like, there is an answer I kind of don't want to give mm-hmm. to this, which I sort of don't want to go in the direction of saying like, what can you do to maximize token market cap? And I don't want to make strong statements about whether it would be profitable or not to do that. Mm-hmm. I just sort of want to say like, look, that's not what I'm excited to see in the space. So let's put that aside for a second. I think that like the biggest mistake that I see people making, and we just see this again and again and again and again and again, is forgetting that it might matter to build a good product. And it feels a little weird to say that, but but it, I think it just really is like, I mean, we saw this with the exchange space when we entered, right? Which is like, these products are like, they really need a lot of work, you know? And like, it, it sort of felt like that was sort of like a, a weird hot take, you know, like, oh, whoa, like FTX thinks that it's really important to go build good products. Like, we'll see how that strategy plays out. That's a new one, right? And I'm being a little bit glib, but, but I don't think I'm being that unfair. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I do think that that was like, just all over the place was like, a lack of excitement about building a good product. And and I think that we see it a little bit with NFT video games mm-hmm. today, where I can tell you that what we see a lot of people talking about is we know how to mint tokens. Why don't we go make a video game and then mint tokens in it? Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of like, oh boy, like that's kind of like a video game developer saying like, we know how to build games. Why don't we go build games then do the crypto thing? And the answer is like, do you, do you know what the crypto thing is? Like, do you, I don't know, what, what, or you Google crypto to decide what to do? Like, what's, what's the plan there, you know? And I think that like, you know, there's just sort of this sense of like, a sort of neglect for the difficulty and importance of doing a fantastic job at building the actual product or of knowing how to do a fantastic job at that. And that's, that's kind of weird, but, but I just do sort of think that it's like, that it's what we see. Like that is honest to God, what we see, you know, I think the way that we think about it is much more coming from the perspective of like, well, let's say that we want to put NFTs in a video game, which is something we're strongly thinking about, right? What would we do? I mean, first of all, obviously we'll have conversations with, you know, the, whatever the sort of like obvious names there. I'm not going to be breaking out my Unity skills and trying to like put together a video game. I don't fucking know how to make a video game, right? I've never done that before. And I don't, yeah. like, why would anyone want to play? Gamer. You I'm are a gamer, yeah. but I've never built one. And I'm not saying I couldn't, in theory, learn how to do that, <laughs> right? Like, maybe I could be like, all right, I'm going to like devote the next three years of my life getting really good at making video games because I think that's what's, but I, I have a job. It's kind of the problem there, right? right? Like, I, I yes. kind of already have a job. I mean, you know, that would be an interesting direction to go in and, you know, maybe, maybe not the one that I would think is necessarily correct. But, but I do think that is sort of really is how a lot of people are seeing this. And I think that like the way that we think about it is like, no, you know, we're going to reach out to people who are damn good at making video games. Probably that seems like the, the first direction to That's go in here. Answer. 
you know? So you like you find people who know how to make a great game. And then you're like, can we work together on this? Right? Like, we know crypto, you know video games. Like, what if you put those together? And 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 I think that like, you know, what what I would think would make sense would be like talking to some of the larger studios and you know, fuck it, maybe acquire a merge with with a smaller one that knows how to make a great game. And like that that I think would be like unless you happen to have hired like a bunch of people who are like incredibly good at making video games. But but it's sort of like it's hard even to talk about like it's hard to describe how pervasive okay. this attitude feels. Well since you since you kind of went there, I'm gonna I'm gonna unpack this a little bit more. How does this fit into the broader umbrella of the firm? I imagine you actually have the opposite going on elsewhere, right? You have gaming crypto companies like Axie now building a deck. So do you see FTX kind of running in the opposite direction and there'll be some sort of convergence there? Yeah, I think there's certainly going to be a piece of that. And I also think that there's going to be a fair bit here of like, who knows where everything ends up, right? Like, like we're all making this up as we go is sort of the honest truth, but that's okay. You know, so be it. Uh, I think the biggest thing is like, what, you, you know, is all right. So we're going to be going one way. Other people are going to be going another way. You can go either way. I don't know what the right way to go is. I think what I feel much more strongly is like, again, just like build something great is what I think is like actually important here. And is what we're kind of focusing on is let's build, like we want to combine a great game with great NFTs and great thoughts about in- integration there. There are a few different ways this could ultimately work out. And that's going to be dependent on like weird contingent specific facts. Yeah. You know, but, it's early days. Yeah, exactly. But that's a high level. And, and I do think that like, in some sense, maybe we're going opposite or, or, you know, going like sort of converging, but, together. Yeah. But, but I think that there's also maybe a difference in approach there, which is like fairly significant. Well, it's not going to be linear. It's going to be more like, right, right. It's going to be, it's going to be more like that. And I think that like, you know, the things that we're looking most to are, I think, less something like that and more something like, well, okay, where does, how about the like great video game studios, right? That are like professionals at this, at making a video game, like where are they going? And I think that's going to be one of the biggest determinants of what ends up happening here. Well, I, I do want to be respectful of your time. I think we probably, I hope your takeaway is that this is one of the most wide encompassing or at least one of the most wide encompassing conversations you've had. I think so. I have a friend, he's a big fan of yours and begged me to ask you about the Bahamas. Are there any job openings for aspiring chads? And then more (laughs) broadly, what's your advice? And we'll leave it with this one because, you know, I hope we'll draw on some of the more younger crowds out there. If, If there's an aspiring young crypto person or person who wants to get into crypto and work at FTX, how do they, how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we are growing. I, I do want to just caveat this by saying that we're trying to grow thoughtfully and intentionally is maybe the way we would describe it, but we're not trying to grow at the expense of everything else. We're really trying to uh, to, to only grow at the rate that we can actually manage people. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is you can apply, you can go to, you know, ftx.com, ftx.us to find ways to apply, you can reach out to us. But I think what we're looking for the most is like, you know, people who will focus on how can we work collaboratively as a team to do the right things. And and again, that sounds a little glib, but but I think as opposed to like, these are the roles that we need to fill. We need someone with these specialties who's going to be siloed in this way and is going to be master of this thing. I also mean that as opposed to like, how can we hire like a senior exec 
with like decades of experience in X, Y, and Z. Like that's also not how we think about it. We think about this much more as like, look, hopefully, you know, come on board. Hopefully you can do great things and we can find great ways to work together. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you taking the time. I can't wait to get this out. It's going to be our first, I think our first two-parter. And we will see you in the new year, ladies and gentlemen. Sam Bankman-Fried joining us, CEO of FTX and Shoe Connoisseur. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Talk to you soon.